1: I really am a mean and despicable creature at heart, you know. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. Had been dreading this day for months and months. It was finally time for him to go through his first Christmas Eve as the handler. Well, the handler's assistant. You could say that being the handler's assistant was a cushy job, in some ways. It was the handler themselves that did the feeding, the cleaning, the medicating, kept the records, did most of the cerebral work. The assistant was really just a gopher, more of an attendant to the handler than an assistant in their duties. So, you could say that being the handler's assistant was a cushy job, but you wouldn't, considering that the job had the highest mortality rate out of any in the North Pole, because Christmas Eve was different. On the day of Christmas Eve, the assistant had the onerous task of fetching the reins, preparing the reins, and getting them into the reins. As Philiker fiddled with his large, jangling ring of keys, searching for the one that opened the large, iron front doors of the pen facility, his mind drifted to thoughts of the Handler's assistants in recent memory who had come before him. Glensheim had been trampled, though the coroner said his death had been instantaneous. Dwendal wasn't so lucky, Gord nearly sawn in half, but he'd still had enough life force to drag himself and his nearly detached lower extremities out of the room. The poor boy thought he was going to make it up until the very end. But the position didn't always end in death. The year before dwindle, there had been Jojo. Jojo had miraculously gotten through her first year as the assistant and was quite close to getting through her second, but a swift kick to the head ended all that. Jojo survived, but was left totally blind and had frequently suffered from full-body tremors since. So, considering all of that, Philiker didn't have the highest hopes for how the day would turn out. A probable death sentence passed 364 days ago when he'd drawn the shortest straw in the workshop. But dwelling on it certainly wouldn't help. No, if there was any chance of surviving the day, Philiker would need to swallow down the fear he felt and channel it into something useful. He found the key and entered the building. Just in the foyer and office area, Sitting at his desk, as he always was when Philiker arrived for the day, was old Lemmy Jangles. In his youth, Lemmy had been an assistant of supreme talent and had escaped the position in the only known possible way, surviving long enough to replace the handler when they retired. Lemmy looked up from his work and gave the young elf a hard, knowing look. There were no more words that could be exchanged between them. Philiker had been prepared as thoroughly as he could be, and the rest was up to him. Besides, Lemmy hardly spoke to anyone anymore, not since his laryngeal cancer. He just gave Philiker a soft nod. Philiker nodded back and continued on his way to the pens. Before long, he was at the gate to the first pen, reins in hand. He gazed up at the crude, etched metal sign that hung above. Dasher. It seemed as good a place as any to start. He took hold of the winch to his left and began to crank it with an iron crunch, a maddening dang dang dang, dang 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 the gate's door rose and revealed the pitch darkness inside. Philliker peered in. A smell hit him first, animal musk, and what was probably the now-rotting meat from yesterday's meal. Then, a the sound, the low, monstrous braying of an animal that was having its territory encroached upon. As Philliker's eyes adjusted, He could begin to see the outline of the beast just barely catch the light from the hallway. The handlers never dared expose them to harsh light. They'd grown so used to only going outside in the dark of Christmas Eve, lighting the room would risk ruining their eyes. Still, he could see enough to make his heart race. Just the size of it alone, the dense, hard muscle, the tough skin, or was it scale? Philiker found himself wondering how physically strong this creature must have been to help haul the one billion pounds, give or take, of presents to be delivered that night, let alone the modifications made by the biolabs over the years and the magic suffused within the creature long ago. But Philiker shook his head and pushed those thoughts away. Any distractions now would be the death of him. He breathed deeply, straightened his back, squared his shoulders and entered. Back at his desk, Lemmy raised his head again to the sound of thrashing chains and short, frustrated screams. He wondered how many Filiker would be able to get rained. He wondered if Filiker would make it to Rudolph. He wondered if he'd wear the hazmat suit. Lemmy himself had never bothered, figuring that it would harshly cut his speed and mobility, though thinking about it made him rub his throat.
0: Hey, you okay there? She nearly jumped when he asked her that. She'd been staring so intently at the tree that she hadn't even noticed him walk up behind her. Oh, yeah, she said, just looking at the ornaments. And she had been. In fact, she'd been looking at them since they'd gotten to his parents' house yesterday afternoon. When they got there, and after introductions and pleasantries, she took a peek around the first level, thinking about how this was her first Christmas away from her own family. But things here weren't too different. Tree, stockings, mistletoe. There was even a little, well, not quite a nativity, but some nativity animals arranged on the mantle. Four of them. An ox, a donkey, a goat, and a lamb. All the same size, all bronzed, and all with their necks craned up and their mouths open. Interesting, she thought at seeing that. But she didn't question it. That was probably just the way they did things in this family. And it was while she was taking that peek around that she noticed the ornaments on the tree, those five jewel orbs. They're gorgeous, she said, noticing his mother had come into the room. Oh, well, thank you, his mother had responded. They've been in the family for decades. It's a shame most of them are broken, she'd commented, noticing that all but one of the orbs were cracked and had large uneven shards missing from their spherical shells. Well, those things happen, "'his mother had said with a cheery face. "'Now come on, let me show you the rest of the house.' "'But she lingered for a moment "'and paid special attention to the one pristine orb remaining. "'It was a brilliant, beautiful green, the colour of emerald, "'and crisscrossed with thin lines of gold ivy. "'Wow,' she thought. "'That really is something.' "'And then she noticed it twitch. "'Or she thought she did. "'She blinked, and her mouth hung open for a second but his mother was now tugging on her arm and carried her off to show the kitchen and the upstairs guest room. But the orb wasn't far, and the next time she'd had a spare minute, she was back there staring at it, closer this time. Had it been a trick of the eye? Had the drive up just been too long? As unlikely as what she'd thought she'd seen seemed, she just couldn't shake the feeling. She'd thought about mentioning it, but this was the first time she was meeting his parents. She didn't want to seem like a weirdo. She really liked him. But still, she just couldn't help herself but stare. Every second she had free, her eyes were fixed on it. And for all that she was trying to be subtle about it, he clearly noticed. Especially when she had her head right in the tree like that, getting her face as close as she could without actually touching it. She didn't want to risk breaking the last of what were clearly family heirlooms. Oh, that old thing, he said? Yep, it should be ready any time now. Wait, what? She turned back to ask, but before she could even get the words out, the orb began to shake quickly and energetically. She looked on in awe as the orb started to crack, and as shards of jewel shells started falling onto the floor. It then stopped, and there was a moment of silence, before a tiny corn-yellow chick poked its head out from inside the orb and started softly peeping. She was speechless. She turned to him and he had a wide smile on his face. Wow, that'll go perfectly with the others, he exclaimed, before snatching up the chick and rushing out of the room. Where was he going? She knew by now that the way he was walking led to the garage. There was nothing in there but an old metal working set his mother had shown him. She peered down the hallway, trying to find out what he was doing. And as she did, she heard three things. Something being dunked into a thick, bubbling liquid A sharp peep that quickly rose in pitch and then stopped, and the hiss of hot metal hitting cold water. And just like that, he returned to the living room, now holding a perfectly bronzed chick. Smiling, he gave it to her and gestured towards the mantle. She understood without being told. The whole family came in and watched as she rearranged the now five bronze animals so that they were evenly spaced out. It was the same size as them, and had its neck craned up and its mouth open. Him and his mother and father admired the newest piece. They seemed thrilled that the set was now done. She thought about asking, but she stopped herself. She really did like him. And besides, every family has their own holiday traditions. Maybe it was just an Episcopalian thing.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. and the opposing lines of men lay silent in their trenches, listening to the shuffle and murmur of enemies mere yards away. It had turned into a beautiful night, with velveteen skies sliding gently behind a butter-white moon. It was cold, but still, with no north wind to cut among the upturned collars of their uniforms. Breath turned into crystal, and the tongues of flames flickered as the men allowed themselves rare, rationed cigarettes sergeant stafford sat with his back to the wall of the trench the brass pocket watch cold as menthol in his bare hand it ticked away the seconds what is it Sarge?" whispered private mercy the sergeant held up one finger as the watch ticked down tick 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 the sergeant smiled and lowered his hand christmas he said mercy lit up he had lied about his age to join the war He would never admit it, but the boy was at most fifteen. At this moment he looked it, illuminated by childlike delight. A sound wafted over the lip of the trench. Stafford and Mercy looked at each other in alarm and then wonder. The words were foreign, but the tune was familiar. The Germans were singing. Before they knew what they were doing, Stafford and Mercy had joined in, and in a moment the harmony rose from the English trench. The song concluded, laughter rose from both trenches, and then, after a whispered conversation on the other side, boots scuffled over the frozen mud, and an unarmed German appeared in no man's land, holding up both hands as he picked his way through the barbed wire. Mercy reached for his rifle, but Stafford stopped him, putting a hand on his shoulder. It's Christmas, he said, and then was gone over the top to shake hands with the German. And exchanged gifts of poor, rationed chocolate. Uniforms rustled, boots chuffed, and in minutes both sides had climbed from their trenches to meet in the no man's land and share in that greatest of gifts, human goodwill. Through kilometers of crystalline air, Brigadier Peveril's field glass had an unobstructed view of the front. Slowly he lowered it, a warm feeling filling his belly. My word! he murmured. Though he was too far to have heard, he found that the tune of Silent Night had sprung unbidden to his mind, and he hummed to himself as he tapped out a telegram message. It was poetic. It was beautiful. He lifted his field glass again, and saw that the soldiers of both sides had begun a game of football. "'My word,' he said again, shaking his head. "'Can't be having that now, can we?' He felt the rumble before he heard it, and then shells shrieked down into no man's land, churning men from both sides into a vapor of bloody dirt and whirling, burning steel. And then fell the silence of a holy Christmas night. Alone in his dugout, Peverell murmured to himself, Sleep in heavenly peace.
0: From the peaks of the Taurus Mountains, winter brought snow howling through the town. In an open door, the innkeeper rubbed his arms, watching the road below. "'Do you think it's true?' he said. "'What they say about this bishop?' His wife shrugged. "'I've heard a hundred stories about miracles in my life,' she said. "'I've yet to see one.' She wrapped a shawl closer around her shoulders. It was cold, and besides them, nobody was out in the streets, except for the three women. Since their sons had disappeared day and night, they had knelt by the virgin shrine, their lone candle shivering in the wind. "'They still believe,' said the innkeeper. "'And look what good it's done them,' she said. "'Their boys aren't coming back.' He grunted, looking away from them. She turned back inside to stoke the fire. "'Do we have enough meat?' he said. There was hunger in the country. Soldiers had requisitioned more food than the people could afford to give." Lacinius and Constantine were at war again in the Balkans. Yes, she said, the butcher had some casks of pork pickling in the cellar. It costs too much, but the bishop will expect more than rice and beans. A clatter arose outside, and the innkeeper turned back into the wind. The morning women were on their feet, calling out in greeting. Down the road figures on horseback were emerging from the storm. They're here, he said. We should set the table. Bishop Nicholas was a tall man. His beard made prematurely white by the years of Diocletian's Christian persecutions. For a miracle worker, a living saint, he looked tired and thin. Of course, he was saying to one of the morning women, of course I will say a prayer for them. His eyes brightened with relief at the sight of the innkeeper. But first, he said, we have had a long journey and I need to rest. Yes, rest. As they thawed by the fire, the innkeeper served the bishop's party biscuits and hot milk. The tang of cooking pork wafted from the kitchen, and the bishop's nostrils widened. It smells good, he said, though a frown lingered on his face. We have not had meat in days. The towns nearby are stripped bare. We have three casks of pickled pork from our butcher, said the innkeeper. He kept them hidden in his cellar. Ah, said Bishop Nicholas. Very clever. Very clever. When the meat arrived at the table, it was crisp and glistening, with golden oil still trembling on the flesh. The party breathed a collective sigh as tart, garlic-scented vapor spiraled from each plate into the candlelight. The man to Nicholas's left reached out, but a hand gripped his wrist with cold strength. "'Wait!' said Nicholas. His eyes had widened. "'Do not touch the pork!' A silence fell. Three casks of pork your butcher gave you?" said the bishop. The innkeeper nodded, and the bishop sank back with a hand covering his eyes. A realization crept down the innkeeper's spine. You don't think—he started, but a deep hum had filled the room, and when the bishop looked up, a ring of light, a perhelion, had appeared behind his head. The bishop spoke. Timothy, Mark, and John, put your fleshly garments on. He held out a scarred and weary hand, and on the plates the flesh began to twitch. The hum deepened to a rumble, and like the flecks of iron drawn by a magnet, the chunks of flesh twitched toward each other, rolling into three piles. At the same time, a crash and a rush sounded from the kitchen, and the innkeeper's wife shrieked. A stinking torrent of vinegar poured into the room, and then, as the innkeeper's wife continued to scream... Three greyish figures lurched into the dining-room, squelching on mulched feet of ground, muscle, and bone. The bishop's men cried out and leapt back from their chairs as the meat threw itself on the table, scattering plates and cutlery. The chunks leapt to them. There was writhing and twisting as butchered limbs pieced themselves together. Blood spurted over the tables as hearts began to pump again, scabbing between the cuts and then scarring and then smoothing over into skin. The bishop's halo faded, and the rumble died. On the table, three living boys now sat, cross-legged. "'A miracle,' murmured the bishop's men. "'A miracle! A miracle!' Two of the boys leapt to their feet. "'Hallelujah!' they shouted." Hallelujah! Hallelujah! But the third boy stayed where he sat, touching his face with newly reknit hands, a dark look hanging between his brows. "Why did you do that?" he said, lifting his gaze to the tired old man. "It was better to be dead. I couldn't remember the pain. I was at peace. Now I have to live like this." The old man's eyes widened. A silence fell send me back screamed the boy send me back to death but in later years when the story was retold and the pickled boys became part of saint nicholas's myth the last part was forgotten as such parts and stories always are
1: i think it was 1992 or maybe 93 The older cousins were huddled near the TV, talking about boys and girls, and making fun of each other in the too harsh way that young teens do. I was under a ragged quilt on the sofa next to my dad, too sleepy to do much more than watch the Yule Log channel. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. See, we didn't have a fireplace, but every year on Christmas Eve, one of the higher-numbered channels on the cable box would air nonstop live footage of a roaring hearth. It wasn't... Gripping television, but after a big dinner nobody had the wherewithal for complex characters or plots. Instead, the false fire flickered, barely seen in the corners of eyes, in the background of lively conversations. When its presence was unobserved, unquestioned, there were brief moments it felt real. But it wouldn't be long before the illusion was broken. Whenever the fire got low, a hand would reach in from out of frame and add more wood to the fire. That, or it would poke and prod at the stack of logs with an iron pole, sending up clouds of red sparks. The hand had been the same each year since we'd started watching the Yule Log Channel, a slab of flesh with thick cigar-like fingers that were surprisingly agile. The palm was perpetually rind with soot, and the knuckles adorned with tufts of wiry black hair, hair which thickened as it raced up along the forearm. That was all I ever saw. The edge of the camera cut off just below the elbow, even when the man reached down to place new logs in the bottom of the fireplace. I didn't think much of the Yule Log Channel, but this year I was struck by a thought, which I posed as a question to my dad, sitting nearby. Where exactly were the man and the fire? My dad considered it, rolling a sip of the whiskey his sister had gifted him around his tongue. "'It's a local channel,' he said, after a moment. "'So I suppose he must be somewhere nearby.' The non-answer was good enough for a tired nine-year-old who hadn't really cared anyway. A moment later, the clock on the VHS blinked 9.30 p.m., and, as if sensing it from the other room, my mother called out for bedtime. I brushed my teeth and got under the covers, trembling with excitement. After all, tomorrow was Christmas Day. It was still dark outside when I awoke. The radium green hands on my glow-in-the-dark wristwatch read 4 a.m., Nobody would be awake for hours, and the Christmas rules were ironclad: No opening presents until everyone was up. But still, it couldn't hurt to peek, right? The unlit tree was just ahead in the living room. A pale glow danced across the dark needles. Someone had left the TV on. It was still showing the Yule Log channel. The on-screen fire was just as bright as it had been earlier in the evening. At the bottom edge of the screen, I could just make out a large pile of white ash. Based on the size, the fire must have been burning all night. I started looking for the remote to change the channel, but stopped when I saw the meaty hand enter the frame from the top left corner. The fire tender nudged at the blazing logs with his poker. His palm was slick with sweaty soot, and the bristly hair on his knuckles were coated in ash, like dust clutched between the legs of a dead centipede. I was transfixed. Why was he still working? Who at this hour could possibly be watching? I inhaled sharply. The other hand had entered the frame and was holding something, something alive. It sat short and plump and hairless in the other hand, its fat little legs swaying gently in the updraft flooding out from the hearth. Its skin was a human shade of pink and it had large, watery eyes that took in the room passively, briefly glancing directly at the camera. I leaned closer. The creature contained snips and samples of animals I knew, but was clearly distinct from all of them. A dog's dark wet nose and the buttoned tail of a rabbit, carrot and hooves I'd last seen on a fawn. The creature did not struggle as the man grasped it gently with the fireplace tongs. The slight pressure made the creature look up and to the left, where the man must have been standing, before he thrust it deep into the hearth. I clapped my hands over my mouth, barely holding back a scream. The creature was obscured by the flames, but I could see it wasn't trying to escape. The man had even left the grate open, and yet the small form didn't even flinch. It just burned and burned as the fire slowly died down, the watery eyes losing their moisture and shrinking back into the deep sockets. The tongs reappeared, and the creature was retrieved and placed on the pile of ash. Its once pink skin now roasted to a glistening brown. The hands shot into frame, filthy with grime and ash and oil. They grasped the carcass, heedless of the still-sizzling fat, and retreated off-screen with their prize. The fire was dead, except for a few glowing coals. Without the noise of the blaze, it was quiet enough for me to hear the sounds from just off-camera. The sounds of chewing of bones snapping, of grease bubbling between teeth and gums. Then the screen went black. I blinked. Unnoticed by me, a dawn light had crept into the living room, turning it gold and coaxing sweat from my neck. Above me I heard the muffled excitement of my cousins and reluctant shuffling of my parents. My watch read, 7 AM. It was Christmas morning. Season's greetings from The Wrong Station. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash therongstation. This special episode was written by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte-Spiel and performed by Anthony Botello and Tara Wink. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte-Spiel with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at thewrongstation@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and Jacob BRDS. We're wishing you all happy holidays from The Wrong Station. And until next time...